0: Episode 7 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho, uh, the formerly incarcerated guy. Among other things, I'm a freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction, Living Hope. Joel. Hi there. I'm Joel Barson, and I'm Josh's apostle. <laughs> oh my. All right. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the rest of kind of pre-sentencing. We started with that last week uh, when we talked, or the last time when we were talking about, uh, what were we talking about? Plea bargaining. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about pre-sentencing investigations and public defenders and indigent defense.
1: Which means we're going to be talking about... The Atticus Finches of the world—is uh, that? Was we... he a
0: public defender? I don't even know. I yeah. remember. I remember the movie very well, and I remember the book very well, but I don't remember what he was officially. Yeah. I'm not sure either. But I wanted yeah. to
1: get a movie reference in there. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's
0: yeah. good. I love movies too. Uh, just out of curiosity, what was your what was your favorite thing about that movie?
1: Well, I think obviously, like most people, his um, you know the integrity of this uh, you know champion of the underdog and and the disenfranchised, the marginalized, how, um, you know, how his um, determination to serve um, even those who couldn't afford it um, led to them getting the best defense and ultimately justice. Although not so much in that instance. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. The end of the yeah. movie
0: was not that yeah. that he yeah. got justice That's for true. the person who
1: But but nonetheless, Atticus Finch is an inspiration to many.
0: Yeah. 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 And you know, Boo Radley too.
1: Yeah. The um the reading we did in preparation for today mostly made me want to find my nearest public defender and give them a hug yes Uh, because they seem um so it's not a good
0: uh not a good job to have really if you think about it the
1: more the more i read the more awful it seemed um it's just terrible
0: yeah and we'll get to that in a second i kind of want to start with one of the most under investigated parts of the criminal justice system which is the pre-sentencing investigation uh, which i find to be immensely troubling. Uh, so can
1: you explain what the connection is between that and, um, and public defenders?
0: Well, it's really more, it, we're really more just talking about all the things that happen before sentencing and trying to get through all of those. So the connection is really just that it's pre-sentencing and a pre-sentencing investigation happens between the plea period and the sentencing period. So once you've been, you've pled guilty or been found guilty, but have yet to be sentenced, Uh, you do what's called a pre-sentencing investigation. So um, you had some experience with that. Unfortunately, I did have firsthand experience with this. Uh, So I was tried in two jurisdictions uh, for similar charges that happened in two places because it was an Internet crime. So anyone that I talked to was, you know, wherever they were, that's where the crime occurred. And so I had to do two pre-sentencing investigations. And basically what happens is that you meet with a parole or probation officer who you, at least I had never met before until that moment. And they do a questionnaire and they ask you some follow-up questions. Uh, and then they do an investigation themselves, write up a report, and then that report gets submitted to the judge. So how, how extensive is the investigation that they conduct? I think it differs based on the motivations of the person who's doing the investigating. Uh, In my case, though, I had one who seemed to do a fairly good job, asked me all the same questions, uh, wrote a pretty favorable report uh and did do some some investigating beyond and then i had another one who went even farther and started trying to for instance look at anyone else that i'd talked to what state they were in and then would start to call that state to see if they wanted to prosecute me Whoa. so they were really motivated to try to try to jam me up as we say in the in the criminal justice system
1: so so who does that person represent in the process they're clearly not representing the person
0: on trial uh, no, I think that they, they're on the same side as the prosecutor. They they feel like their job is to protect society from, uh, you know, so it's not, an it's weird because from the judge's standpoint, they're getting only one report, but that report seems to be coming from the same side as the prosecutor. So it's not exactly objective, I guess is the way that you would put it.
1: And you were telling me as we were preparing for this episode that the this report ends up not only impacting your sentencing, but... It stays with you beyond that.
0: Yeah, I mean, before you get to that, there's the other problem, which is that you usually get the report just a few minutes before you are to be sentenced. And then you have to you have to attest to if it's accurate or not, which is really troubling because it's not a short report usually and has a lot of details. And if you miss any of those details, then you're just. You know, there's no, you can't challenge it later. So you've got one shot. You know, for instance, in my case, I found two inaccuracies very quickly and we were able to raise them and have them stricken from the record, Uh, which is lucky because if I'd missed them, they would have just stayed there in perpetuity. But you're right. uh, Another problem is, is that they're not just used by the judge. They're also used by the Department of Corrections. And so, for instance, one... Very troubling aspect of my pre-sentencing investigation was used against me in two parole hearings. Even though the entire time I was in prison, uh, I never had one disciplinary disciplinary action or any problems of any kind during my three years in prison. I had a very short sentence, so I was up for parole every year. Uh, I was denied twice, ostensibly because in my pre-sentencing report it said that I was a habitual drug user. Uh, And were you? (laughs) Well, what I'd said in my pre-sentencing interview and what was in the report was simply this. I said that when I was in college, I had experimented with marijuana and had tried cocaine once. And that might be troubling, except that when I was in trial... I was 42 years old, and I graduated college when I was about 21 or 22, so it had at least been 20 years since the admission that I had tried marijuana and cocaine once.
1: And the way this was brought up in your parole hearings are... are, Oh,
0: it was never brought up in my parole hearing. It was brought up in my reason for denial. So when I got the reason for denial, it would say, you know, Josh is a habitual drug user. So your your truthfulness before
1: your sentencing about something that happened 20 years prior and and um, experimentation that you share with uh, a, a, a great portion of society that cost you possibly a year or two of freedom.
0: Well, personally, I think that they were looking for an excuse because they think you should. This is a crazy. We'll get into this more in later episodes but they have very limited amount of money for programming and they feel like you should have to have certain kinds of programming before you get out. And so they, in order to delay your release until after you have the programming, they have to come up with excuses. And this was the excuse they had because they didn't have any tickets. I had never gotten any trouble. What we call tickets is disciplinary actions. Uh, They didn't have any reports that said I would, I'd done badly at anything I was supposed to do. So they had to make up something. And so they dug and they somehow turned, uh, tried a few, tried drugs once or twice into habitual drug user. And wow. I actually had a, a grievance that went all the way to the, uh, state ombuds, And if I hadn't been granted parole, we were going to go forward with that. And the state o- ombudsman was, uh, thought that I had a case. Wow.
1: Wow. So, um... Does that lead us on to the plight of the public defender and the imbalance?
0: Well, I just want to say one last thing about pre-sentencing investigations. It just seems to me that the idea that someone you've never met before, who's had one discussion with you and may end up liking you or not liking you, has any... that there's a fair process, that, that that person should make sentencing recommendations to the judge or that those sentencing recommendations should be all a judge hears is wildly crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, yes. There is a whole industry that's been created that all they do is write mitigating reports, but you actually have to pay them. And then they do a kind of corresponding second investigation. And if the judge decides that they're worth paying attention to, you know, like my mitigating report had over 40 people who wrote letters of testimony for me. And the judge, the judge totally ignored my, you know, didn't even consider it and just considered the PSI.
1: In in favor of something that had been drafted by someone who met you one time. Yeah. um, it's, it's unbelievable and it's i don't want
0: to i don't want to yeah. say like boohoo for me yeah. you know i mean like i said yeah. i was guilty of some of the stuff i was charged for i pled guilty i understand all that my point isn't to say boohoo it's that even in that situation yeah just think of everybody else who doesn't have the ability to write a mitigating report or doesn't have 40 letters of recommendation doesn't have all that stuff and just the immense disc- the, the crazy unelected unaccountable uh ability for that person to write a report that defines me when they don't even know me right. you know, or every other person. I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about the Royal, the literally the Royal, we, everybody who faces this, it's just an incredibly unfair process. Yeah. But it has huge impact. And this person has no accountability uh, at all, really, except for a couple seconds after the report is turned in. So now we can go to the public.
1: Yeah. Defender. I mean, it seems as though at every stage in this process, um, there is a radical imbalance between um, the resources and the leverage that the prosecutor has um, over the, what a defendant
0: can bring to bear, especially um, an indigent defendant. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I think this harkens back to our discussion about cash bail. The difference between being in jail or freed should not be determined by how much money the defendant has in terms of bail. And it absolutely should not be determined by money when your long-term freedom is on the line. And we should care as much about or more about people's freedom right. uh, than we do about almost anything else, including uh, relative risk of safety. I mean, we already have, at least theoretically, the Constitution is designed to protect freedom uh, from, you know, it's it's supposed to be our core value. And um, much like we've sort of touched upon in a
1: lot of other episodes, our, uh, you know, our shared cultural mythology about the criminal justice system might lead us to believe that there is some equal representation for indigent folks. In part, I say this because in every show that involves police and prosecutors and, and the criminal justice system and defense attorneys. You witness someone who's arrested being read their Miranda rights, where they're told they have a right to an attorney. Um, and it would seem that the system is projecting early on, unequivocally, that um, fairness
0: and evenness
1: in advocacy is is their right.
0: Yeah, you know, and I saw there's some articles, uh, one of the articles that we read that started with sort of the premise was That, you know, why should there be good defense? And one of the things that they said was without access to good defense, many people could find themselves incarcerated for no other reason than being poor. Nudge, nudge, just like when we were talking about in our last episode, uh, when you said something about, you know, this system could be Orwellian. I was like, it is Orwellian. Right. Uh, That is what we have now. People, even when they provide uh, public or indigent defense... Uh, they don't really have access to a good defense, and they often do find themselves incarcerated for no other reason than being poor.
1: And this isn't about beating up on defense attorneys it's or, or public defenders. It's the way the system is, is sort of structurally um, uh, created so that they're at an incredible disadvantage.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh... You know, uh, public defenders have dramatically less resources, especially compared to prosecutors, limited training and continuing education, massive caseloads, poor working conditions, uh, unsympathetic and often hostile police and prosecuting attorneys who are working every possible legal angle to make sure that they don't get information. Uh, And all of these generate kind of client reliance, uh, reluctance and hostility to to public defenders and often insult them, you know, because they don't have any faith in their ability to do things. They're incredibly overworked. Let me really one of the things that, you know, really started this whole journey for me. And I'm not talking about being arrested. One of the things that really was an experience I had. While I was, you know, almost an out-of-body experience that I had when I was in a court waiting to be, I think I was waiting to plea. Mm -hmm. And my lawyer, who was not the nicest person in the world, left me out there for a couple hours, basically, as he went and did something. Uh, And all I was just sitting there waiting for him to come back. And so I had a lot of time on my hands And nowhere to go. And so I started looking at the sheets on the wall in the courthouse, outside the courthouse. Mm -hmm. And they have these sheets that are their schedules of all the different trials that are happening, all the different hearings that are happening, and who, and it all had what attorney was assigned to each one of them. And this is obviously very anecdotal and unscientific, but I personally started just looking through and seeing how many names showed up on each one. And what I realized is even that day that certain, defend, some, certain defense attorneys had, it seemed like, up to 30 clients in a day. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you just think about that right. for a second. You know, we have this kind of romantic idea of our lawyer uh, being not only kind of a uh, our savior, but our friend and kind of spends right. a lot of time with us and they're really invested in our case. Right. How much investment can they have when they're dealing with 30 clients a day. And I've seen estimates that some of them have less than an hour per client.
1: Right. In, 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 a, in a typical day in my office, if I sit down and if I have three or four meetings scheduled that day, I think I've got an overly packed, overloaded day. You're, you're talking about 30 encounters. Um,
0: For one attorney. And, yeah. you know, you think of that, you juxtapose that with, say, a prosecutor's office. Right. Where they have a much larger budget. Right. They have a much larger staff. Uh, they have, you know the whip hand on almost every situation. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a crazy imbalance.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, you know, one of the articles we read in preparation for this episode was by Charles Ogletree Jr, um, an essay on the new public defender for the twenty first century. And I was interested in him putting out the DC Public Defender service as an example of, of this, um, a slightly better resourced, a slightly better trained, and sort of culturally aware um, uh, public defender's office. Did you read that? What do yeah, you think huh? about that?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, sure, yes, it would be awesome if public defender's offices were better resourced. I think that's definitely when we talk a little, when we get a little bit deeper down into the solutions. I think that's a one of the many pretty good answers. Uh, it certainly would make things more equitable.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, it, it you know, in this essay by Charles Ogletree Jr., he identifies all, the, all these things that plague public defenders, the psychological toll, um, the critical clients, which is kind of heartbreaking. You would almost think that it, it, if nothing else, the public defender would have their client on their side, but he explains how... Often, the client is, for lots of reasons, among the most critical of their counsel,
0: yeah, and we've been trained in a lot of senses to believe that they're incompetent and you know, and in fairness, because they're so overworked, a lot of times it appears that way. There are definitely a lot of people who for all, think about it, it's a terrible paying job. the hours are insane. To do a good job, you have to add in all this extra time on your own because otherwise, where are you going to find time to help all these people? And even then, you're probably not spending the time you need to to make sure that you're providing a good defense. But that's the system we have. And so if you're a poor defendant, you know, that's what you got. That's the best you're going to do, you know, unless some firm provides someone pro bono or something like that. Right. Right. And so that's definitely not what happens with most folks. And so
1: the public is critical of them. Their clients are critical of them. Um, They're, they're, they're experiencing the heavy psychological toll of, um, of the weight of all this uh, sort of institutional disadvantages they're pushing against. Why would anyone become a defense attorney or else a public defender?
0: Yeah, it's definitely not uh, the place where you're going to get the most recognition you're going to do, you know, but it's like the last bastion of any hope of actual justice happening, you know, in a lot of ways. Because, you know, our goal should be, I mean, it's so weird how our system is set up to to really reward all the wrong things, you know. Yes, social safety should be a, a big part of what we're trying to do. But that is not the value that's at the core of what's supposed to be our justice system. It's supposed to be justice. And justice is, is making sure that everybody gets, you know, the penalties that they deserve. And, you know, the, the to have freedom be uh, something that's held so dear that we fight against uh, anything that uh, retards freedom. Uh, with the to the utmost of our being. And that's definitely not what's happening. And you get these, you know, these people who are heavily disadvantaged, uh, trying to fight a good fight, but probably not. And I think another thing, and, you know, I wanted to talk about this a little bit more for a while, is how, you know, it's not just that people are poor who get uh, bad public defense. Unfortunately, there's a relationship between poverty and race in our country that is overwhelming uh, in a lot of ways. And I think maybe someone who has listened to all of our podcasts might say, does everything have to be about race? And in a sense, yes. And I think the the outcomes uh, are, we see uh, that for the same, for similar similarly situated crimes that people of color get sentenced to more get get found guilty more, get worse plea bargains, you know, in every step of the way, you know, and they get because of, you know, economic disadvantage. And this isn't to say there are lots of people of color who are not economically disadvantaged, but there are a lot of people who are. And the people who come into contact with the justice system because of a lot of reasons, uh, which I'll talk about a couple more in a second, uh, you know, they end up getting public defenders a lot more and they end up getting uh, a different kind of justice or a different brand of justice that people who are not people of color do. Um, and so what I wanted to say is when people, they're, they're kind of knee-jerk is to say, you know, well, right, you know, slavery ended 200 years ago. Well, that's not true, obviously, because right. we've only been around for 254 years or something like that. But uh, I want to remind people that you know our system uh you know if you really think about it so we had slavery we had reconstruction and that first reconstruction wasn't exactly what you would call liberal for people of color we had jim crow and then we had the last 50 years and what i mean by that is jim crow ended in 1967 which is the same year I was born. I'm 50, so I'm pretty sure that means that we've had 50 years. Uh, And so it hasn't been hundreds of years. It hasn't been 100 years. It's been, you know, 50 years ago, there are places in the United States where African-American people could not drink at the same water fountain that I could. You know, and that's not a whole lot of time. And then if you add some other things into it after Jim Crow and through Jim Crow, like, for instance, if you ever read the study uh, American Apartheid uh, by the sociologist Massey and Denton, mm-hmm. uh, you will learn that there was massive, and I mean massive, systemic uh, real estate discrimination. And so not only were you discriminated against, you know, and we could talk about, you know, education is another area of this, but even where you live was determined uh, by the color of your skin. And so there were all of these things. There's a great book called "When Affirmative Action Was White," uh, about all the ways in which employment was triggered. To, you know, there's all these studies that have been done about you know discrimination in hiring, discrimination, and and so all of these things add up to mean that the equality of opportunity that we think that we've had, we haven't had. And I'm not even saying that it's uh, conscious. Right. You know, I think if you went to a real estate agent and you said hey, you're a racist, they would say, no, no, we're not. But then if you look at the results of how they channeled people from place to place, they definitely channeled people based on, you know, they may not be conscious of it. You know, you go to a hiring agent, you know, you may be able to say, and so everyone's like, why are you talking about this still? The reason is, is because there's massive structural racism in the United States. It just factually is correct. No question about it. I appreciate you saying that, Josh, very much. Yeah, and so, you know, I mean... If the vast majority of people who are in the criminal justice system end up with public defenders because they're poor and of color, then that's something we should be concerned with.
1: Yeah, no question. So does this bring us to how we can address the inequities in this public defender system? Clearly, one way in which it always has to be addressed is what you just pointed to, which is... We, we have to be relentless in um, shining a light on the underlying structural racism in the system.
0: And what else? Well, I think you, one thing you mentioned before is providing more equal resources so that prosecutors offices and public defenders have, you know, so it's not like the prosecutor gets like $6 to prosecute a case for every $1 that the defend, you know, defense gets. Uh, you know, that there should be ongoing training and continuing education for people who are public defenders and that they should be compensated at a more equal level. And everyone's like, well, we don't want to spend money for that. Come on. I mean, you know, yes, we should want to spend money for that because as, I can't I think it was Justice Brennan, someone, former Supreme Court justice, one of them, I'll find it and put it on the notes, said that, you know, justice sh- should never be cheap. You know, that the th- the things that are at, stake are way too important to right. to be counting pennies and on top of that we don't seem to have any problem paying for the other side right. you know why are we willing to let injustice happen uh, and look and be blind to it and keep pouring money on the one side but not the other that doesn't make any sense to me No, not uh, at all. I think we probably could have oversight bodies uh, who do not have a vested interest in you know in convictions mm-hmm. but are their their vested interest is in uh good results
1: yeah I, have there been any experiments with that before?
0: i haven't seen any okay but i think in all of these things that we've talked about you know whether it be plea bargaining or prosecutors or you know this indigent defense mm-hmm. that you know that there were some kind of an ombuds right. someone who was in charge of saying hey you know, that that weren't, you know, and uh, didn't answer to either the prosecutor or the defense or the judge or whatever, but that they answered to maybe the legislature or something like that. And that their purpose was to look at the system kind of like in uh, police departments where they have internal affairs. right? And their job is just to see if these people, if the system is working correctly. Yeah. You know, I think that might be a good a good idea. Uh, I don't know. What else did you you come across?
1: Well, I, I was sort of getting at this earlier, but I was really inspired by um, when Charles Ogletree in his essay talked about the culture in the Washington, D.C. Public Defender's Office. Um, it, 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 to be honest, it reminded me of the work culture that I'm in, which is um, uh, just really nurturing, um, is is very self-aware, and it made me think about how... You know if these if public defenders are working in settings that are awful and and um, and where everyone is beleaguered and worn down and and not supportive of each other, then that's gonna impact um, their ability to muster not just outer resources but inner resources when working with folks. If I could read this one paragraph, sure, because um, I think it's really um, it's really beautiful. He in talking about the d c public defender's office. Charles Ogletree says, In addition to the excellent training that they received, the culture of the office encouraged the commitment of each attorney to her clients, thereby improving the quality of representation. The service sought to instill in each attorney the ability to understand and sympathize with the clients by pointing out the social ills that had played a part in bringing the clients to their current situations. Many were poor black men who were undereducated, unemployed, underemployed, Um, and so on. Um, Drug use was often present. um, Ellipsis marks here. Um, But a greater understanding of these factors brought these defendants, which brought these defendants into the criminal justice system, not only generated increased commitment on the part of public defenders, but also allowed the attorneys to provide more insightful representation in many cases. It sounded beautiful.
0: It does sound beautiful. I think, you know, I mean, the pushback you'll get, you know, and I think usually you play the devil's advocate and I'm obviously not on this side but I think a lot of people would say you know wow, wow, boo hoo you know they had all these bad situations they still chose to be to do a criminal act or not and uh, how have you where have you uh, how have you come around I mean what is your thoughts about that kind of thinking
1: well um, it would seem that we should um, never let go of um, uh, of our own work at being more compassionate individuals, um, a a more empathetic uh, culture generally, and importantly, as suggested by um, Charles Ogletree, that's not something we can usually do on our own. We need to be surrounded by people who remind us of our core values and our reason for being in that work and the inequities in our society, which you have um, have spoken of so articulately in this episode, Josh, we, we need to be um, in environments and contexts and support systems that encourage us to be our, our wisest, best, um, most compassionate selves so that we can um, be helped
0: by others and help others. I totally agree with what you're saying, but I'm still going to keep pushing at you a little <laughs> bit. So... They still chose to commit a crime. who cares if they had disadvantages or whatever? I understand that you say we're supposed to be our wisest and but why is it wise to you know to to be lenient or empathetic well, well the answer to that is one
1: that you've helped oh. me to see, which is um that uh if what we really want um and it's hard for me to imagine that most people wouldn't agree with this. If what we really want our uh, quote-unquote criminal justice system to lead us towards is um, a safer world, then, um, then we need to tap into those values so that um, we can push the system to, um, to adapt and evolve and, um, and access and access better remedies um, that address these underlying issues that help people, that meet people where they're at. Um,
0: Yeah. Back in my old debate days, I used to say, you know, when, you know, policy debate is you know one team provides a policy and then the other person argues that the policy is a bad idea. And then at the end of the debate, a judge decides, I used to say all the time being part of a, of a solution that creates a larger problem isn't, A solution. Right. Right. You can call it a solution, but it's not a solution. And the truth is, regardless of what you think about culpability, which is a different question, we know that by addressing the underlying causes, we can have better solutions. Right. And so, for instance, we know that drug court diversion, Mm -hmm. when we do that, Mm -hmm. has better outcomes than putting someone in prison who has been Mm -hmm. addicted or is struggling with a substance. Mm -hmm. We know that addressing through treatment uh, certain mental health issues is more successful than incarceration. So if the end result is safety, and I understand some people want to punish so bad that they probably would, they don't care if there's more crime, as long as they get the punishment, you know, to me, that makes no darn sense, you know? So even if you don't inherently feel empathetic toward, you know, people who've committed a crime or you want to call it, committing a crime or making a mistake or taking a wrong turn didn't know any better life addressing the core causes has better outcomes so if social safety is a goal and i think it should be the goal you know then we've got to have a better if, if we were in a tv courtroom uh,
1: a tv courtroom drama right now i would say asked and answered um and it was the best possible answer you gave to the question you posed to me.
0: I do want to suggest one other solution that we haven't talked about because we kind of jumped to solutions to the indigent defense. I think we should also talk a little bit about a solution to the pre-sentencing investigation. Yeah. And I don't think I have, I think that there should be a, either there should be two reports Automatically, one from the defense side and one from the, you know, and that right now, for some reason, defense lawyers and definitely public defenders don't have the resources or don't think it's their job to provide a mitigating report. And so most defendants have to pay out of pocket to hire a firm to do a mitigating report. Uh, and that's, that can be pretty expensive in a world in which you already are struggling. Right. Uh, that's going to be hard to do. If there's going to be a pre sentencing report at all, there should be uh, some, someone who advocates for the person who's accused, not just someone who works for law and order.:
1: Yeah, it seems self-evident. Um, or do you think another way of looking at that would be for the person who is responsible for creating that port, that, that one report, if it's only going to be one, being somehow impartial, not, not an agent of the court?
0: It definitely would help not to be an agent of the court. You should also get the report with enough time to thoroughly vet it. Right. I literally, in both instances, got my my report at while I was sitting in the sentencing uh, room, which is uh, crazy. I mean, it, that, that much influence, yeah. I mean, that could have that much impact on my life. And I've seen it for like yeah. five seconds before the, you know, a couple minutes before I have to say if it's been, if it's correct or not correct is crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gosh. Uh, any final thoughts about public defender
0: stuff? Uh, just that it's, you know, I mean, if we have any, if we even want to pretend that we're trying to find just, you know, justice at the end of the day, we can't have one say it's like, it's like if you had a, a war and you know, you were in a war and one side had not only nuclear weapons, but you know, subs, and tanks and aircraft carriers and the other side was using spears and i mean that's what it's like i mean essentially for a public defender to get a good result requires such they have to overcome such incredible odds yeah i mean it's just not there's nothing even remotely resembling justice that's going on
1: yeah okay okay Thank you so much, Josh, as always.
0: Yeah, thank you, Joel. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, so uh, I guess... uh... You'll be gone for a little while. Hopefully I'll be able to set up an interview or two somewhere in there, but uh, have a good trip, and I hope to see everybody again soon. Decarceration, or have everyone hear us again soon, Decarceration Nation is available on iTunes and Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are aggregated. You can find extensive show notes for every episode on onpiratesatellite.com. Thanks for listening. Hope to hear you, you to hear us again soon.